Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey, this is Ron Tite, author of Think, Do, Say, How to Seize Attention and Build Trust in a Busy, Busy World. And you, yes, you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both keep up with the latest ideas in the quickly changing fields of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, and since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you some time. This show is a labor of love that I do in my spare time. My day job is running a marketing agency where we work with manufacturers and industrial companies to arm their sales teams to take back control of their company's growth. We're not a fit for every company, but if that sounds like you, check out salesartillery.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Ron Tite to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Think, Do, Say, How to Seize Attention and Build Trust in a Busy, Busy World, published by Page Two Books. A best-selling author, speaker, producer, and entrepreneur, Ron Tite has been an award-winning advertising writer and creative director for some of the world's most respected brands, including Air France, Evian, Fidelity, Hershey, Johnson Johnson, Kraft, Intel, Microsoft, Volvo, and many, many others. He's the founder of Church and State, host and executive producer of the hit podcast, The Coup, and publisher of This Is That Travel Guide to Canada, a best-selling and award-winning satirical book. He's written for television, penned a children's book, wrote, produced, and performed a hit play, created a branded art gallery, and was executive producer and host of the award-winning comedy show, Monkey Toast. So not surprisingly, Marketing Magazine named him to their top 10 Creative Canadians list. Ron's first book, Everyone's an Artist, or at least they should be, co-written with Scott Cavanaugh and Christopher Nove, was published by HarperCollins in 2016. And interesting fact, he met his wife on a flight from New York to Toronto. Ron, congratulations on Think, Do, Say, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, Doug, you have done your research finding out how I met my wife. Very good. Yes. It was a, a beautiful encounter. And you, I mean, for those who've flown that trip from New York to Toronto, it's only, you know, slightly more than an hour. So I had to dial up the charm uh-huh. like you wouldn't believe. Wow. Well, well done, good sir. Thank you. And I think in the book, you mentioned that she runs an emergency room at a, at a hospital in Toronto. Yeah, she's uh, she's an occupational therapist by trade, but uh, now works with uh, 
you know, kind of disadvantaged communities and the core downtown Toronto. Um, and uh, yeah, she's the manager of her, an emergency room at St. Michael's Hospital. So, you know, when when I come home and could say things like, ah, there's no Wi-Fi on the plane. You know, <laughs> that's, uh, she puts it all into perspective for me of just how lucky my problems are. Well, or how lucky I am to have the problems I have. Yeah, and if she's anything like my wife, she very often says, what was I thinking? Yeah, um, yeah. When I, when I met totally. Her. Yeah. So, Ron, your book is a delight. It's and it's 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 a beautiful book. It's beautifully laid out. It it it's it was a, it was a joy to read. And you have some really interesting quotes in the book from famous people <laughs> throughout history. And I just I thought I knew a few things about people people like Winston Churchill. And I just want to read one of them just so the listener can get a sense for how prescient. Winston Churchill was. (laughs) It says, a book introduction is like an analog device on a 5G data network. Kind of useless. That was Winston (laughs) Churchill. He said that. Yeah, man. Just picture it with a cigar in his mouth and a British accent. Yeah, yeah. So with that in mind, I just wanted to read the entire introduction to your book, which is titled, This Isn't an Introduction. Most books have an introduction. I don't know why, but most publishers gasp at the idea of not having one. Apparently, people want a preamble, a rationale, a setup, or do they? I respect your time. I appreciate the level of impatience you probably have. So here's my introduction. Thanks for buying this book. I hope you like it. Now let's get to the goods. (laughs) (laughs) And a great way to start an interview. So yeah. Think, do, say. Let's go back in time, though, just a bit and set some context. And it's of great interest to me because I find myself having to explain this to people a lot. I I guess maybe as as you're going through a a rapid change in the world, you don't quite appreciate it. But you say that buying the space is easy. Standing out is not. And I just wanted to read from one page where you talk about Times Square. Times Square is in Kentucky. It's in Winnipeg. It's at your desk. It's in the middle of your living room. Times Square is in your pocket. It doesn't matter where they're located. Consumers, prospects, clients, and colleagues don't know where to look, and they don't know who to trust. So can you say a bit more about the unbelievable odds businesses and people are up against as it relates to trying to stand out, it's not like it was just a few years ago when there was more limited media. No, the, you know, low cost of production and massive distribution has meant that it is ridiculously easy to create content and so thereby ridiculously easy to scale content and promotion. And so we're getting at it from all, we're getting it from all sides. And not it's not just the fact that Hey, you know, there's, there's, you can advertise in so many more places, but it's, it's actually, that's what gets the blame all the time. You know, we've heard it. The average consumer sees 5,000 messages a day. And then they look at people like me and go, you're an ad guy. This is your problem. And I'd say, well, what about the massive proliferation of SKUs of the number of products that have been developed, the number of line extensions of service extensions and brand extensions, because it's never been easier and faster to generate products and to generate promotion and content surrounding those products that, you know, we used to have three banks and that was it. And, you know, and, and as growth has become the sole priority of many organizations, they're branching into areas that, 
you know, they, they never had before into new products and new services. Those all require messaging. And so, <clears throat> yeah, the consumer is seeing messages from all over the place and a wide variety of different angles as they are in Times Square. You know, that was the metaphor of that was if you picture yourself standing in Times Square, this is an entire ecosystem that has been designed for the people who are standing in the middle of it. And it's, it's crazy expensive to be there. But to the people that the entire ecosystem's been designed for, they don't know where to look. They just they don't. And and it's just a bunch of billboards, you know, out trying to outscream one another. And I think that is really indicative of the marketing landscape today. Now the the other side of it though, I think that I think we've actually many marketers have tried to solve that equation or that that challenge and the how do we cut through, how do we cut through. I actually think that has been too dominant a conversation in marketing because what we're left with is rudderless ships that are randomly doing things to capture somebody's attention. And what we should be doing is we should be, yes, cutting through and capturing attention, but we should also be building trust so that our job as marketers becomes easier. And that my friends is what building a brand is. Building a brand is really about, you know, obviously aligning what you think, what you do and what you say. But if, in the in this world where people don't know where to look and they don't know who to trust, if they know that a brand is going to deliver something consistently, an, ama- an emotional experience, a rational experience solves a need, and they can just turn to that brand and it's an easy decision for them to make, a default decision, they have saved time and you as a marketer have saved time. But it only comes with trust. So I think that is the, it is the balance of those two things that, yes, you have to cut through, but more importantly, you have to build trust along the way because trust is something that we are in very, very short supply of. Right. So what you're saying is that companies should do what they say they're going to do? Yeah, that's part of it. You know, yeah, uh, that would be nice. Oh, man, let's, let's stuff I learn there. on these interviews. Right, I know. And I don't just mean, you know, people would say, okay, I get it. You're not supposed to lie. But come on. I mean, there isn't a car dealership in the world that doesn't say, we're, we're not having a sale, we're having an event. Right. No, it's not. This is not an event. There's not a market on the planet who hasn't at one point described their product as the best thing since sliced bread or the best thing in the category or unparalleled. No, it's not. I mean, come on. Let's be honest with this. And the majority of the products that we market are commodity products on some level. If we're in retail or other people sell the stuff we sell. Yet we always, we always market them. And because we have this pressure to solve the short-term cutting through problem – and we give into it and we go, yes, the sale is just like every other sale we've had, but let's call it an event so people think that it's really extra special. And you think it's really harmless because it's just you. But when you accumulate all the events in the world that aren't events, well, let's not be surprised when the, when the consumer goes, I'm calling bullshit on all of this. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and, and when we, um, when they start to look and start to do things on their own. So, yeah, I think trust is, uh, certainly following through on delivering what you've promised is that's low hanging fruit. Right. And related to that, there's a term in your book that I was, had not seen before, but I loved it, of course. And mm. it's a pitch slap. Yeah. <laughs> what is a pitch slap? And then you go on to talk about the OPS, which is the omnipresent pitch slap. Yeah. Well, the the pitch slap 
is a term, and I and as as you may remember from the book, I wrote that a lot of people think I invented that term. I didn't invent the term. I heard it in a meeting from a guy, and you know who heard it from a guy. And I think Winston Churchill may have uh, yeah that's first right. said it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to pitch that one. Uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, that's a horrible Winston Churchill. Exactly. Better than mine, so yeah. Don't be uh, You think up. as a, a member of a Commonwealth country, I could do a better job than that. I'm embarrassed. I'm sorry to our listeners from the UK. But a pitch slap is when you put your own, then you present your ideas to somebody and you're pitching your ideas and you put your own objectives above theirs. And so the blatant example is, you know, the, is the person who sends you a message on LinkedIn and says, I'd really like to connect, connect. I love your content. And three seconds later, so you click accept, boom, and that you get the full, th- we are a mobile first blood, we can deliver leads, but and he's like, you were just BSing me. You had no desire to connect with me whatsoever. You weren't holistically aligned to the things that I liked, or you weren't genuinely interested in the stuff I do. You just wanted to create an opportunity where you could pitch me. And there's nothing more infuriating than that. You know, my good friend Ian Altman had – and I have to go back and I was listening to an episode. So I just want to say that it wasn't me that that said this line, but I don't recall who it was that said it. But – and this was part of my frustration behind the book that his line was, it was never supposed to be about scale. It was supposed to be about customization. And here's what I took from that and what I meant from it in my own kind of frustration was that when I was a creative director at a multinational agency and we were doing print and TV and everything, well, the digital folks showed up and promised this world. And, oh, Doc, it was going to be beautiful, this world. Consumers, oh, they would get the products they needed, when they needed them, how they needed them, where they needed it. It would be seamless. Everything would be targeted to the individual. There would be no more wasteful advertising spending. And, and and we would be able to connect with people who shared our purpose and life would be beautiful and we'd all just exist in a dream catcher. The reality is it's worse. And the reality is because a lot of people have taken the digital tools and used them to scale their pitch. Mm-hmm. They haven't used them to target and customize their pitch. And so it's worse than it ever was. I would love to go back to the days of television and print where people couldn't reach me on some days. And so that is a pitch slap, is people who are just trying to scale their promotion opposed to target and customize their promotion. And there's nothing more offensive in the world. Yeah, it really uh, erodes, and they they can annoy at scale now, or they can scale their annoyance. And it's, you know, I I just read uh, the other day that marketers are fourth from the bottom in terms of trusted professions. Yeah. But- but we're ahead of Congress, so... <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but that's in the U.S. That was the Gallup study. Who could use some marketing, by the way. <laughs> right. Well, I think it was car salesmen, Congress, and uh, I can't remember who the others were. Um, lawyers, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Nothing probably. against lawyers. Right. No, 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 no. They should. They should be down there. But let's, let's talk about one other thing that talks about this erosion of trust before we move on. And it's one that I hadn't really considered. You talk about how influencer marketing, how have influencers screwed the pooch? How have they destroyed trust? Well, it's, it, you know, the influencers have come, have risen, have been created. We created them and we created them for a couple of reasons. The low cost of production, mass distribution meant anybody could create content. Okay, great. So 
as people start to develop niche content just because they wanted to do it, they were interested in it, they were passionate, they started to do blogs and podcasts and photos and everything else. And we bought into that and we loved the authenticity of it. And what happened was the eyeballs got pulled away from traditional media to all these niche outlets and to individual people. Mm-hmm. And so we know as marketers, we go, well, we can't have that. We need somewhere to put our stuff. You know, we need some, we need those eyeballs. Where are those eyeballs going? And so we went to the platforms and we started to create accounts on our behalf. And then the platforms get smart and the platforms go, look, like you're not the same as everybody else. So you got, you need to pay. If you want to show up in somebody's feed, you need to pay for that. Mm -hmm. And, and then, and then the priority was given to organic content over promoted content. And I get that. I support that. But what happened was brands kind of said, well, if we can't get in and join the conversation, maybe we can just hand somebody our product who's been invited to the party, to an individual, and they can talk about it. And so initially, people loved the notion that people who created their own content were authentic, were real, and they could say things that media, traditional media companies couldn't say. They were completely honest with it, and we loved it, and we bought into it. And then Brand showed up and said, what if we paid you to talk about our stuff? What if you sold your soul and took an audience who bought into your authenticity, who bought into your honesty, who bought into you as a real human being, and we hijacked it? And influencers said, I will, you know, name that tune. I will take your check. And we try and get around it like hashtag ad and hashtag sponsored and everything else. And we've, we've, the, the, the big, you know, uh, issue here is that let's just call it what it is. It is a media play and that you are buying an ad on a platform that has the following that has distribution to eyeballs and let's just treat it like that. But I think, uh, many influencers sold their soul to get the check. I think many influencers sold out their audiences to get the check. And and it will slowly catch up with them. Now, the real good ones are the ones who, yes, should be compensated. They need a, a business model that, you know, supports the costs associated with them doing what they do. But, you know, um, I think um, they have to do so in a very honest and transparent way. And if it's an ad, then don't just do hashtag ad. I mean, let's just call it what it, what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think, yeah, that was – People going, does this does this influencer really like this curling iron, or is she was she just sponsored by these people? I don't know. Whereas, you know, um, in previous generations of media, it was very clear what was an ad and, and what was a content. Yeah. Now, is that related to the name of your agency? What's the the derivation of calling it church and state? Yeah, bang on. That is the exact reason. In that. We fully understood that it used to be the separation of church and state and that more and more those worlds were being unified and that traditional media got desperate. We knew that brands could produce content that was on their, you know, on their own. They could be more influential, more knowledgeable than traditional media people Um, and that nobody was actually looking at the entire marketing ecosystem. Some people were going, it's a content play. Other people going, it's an ad play. Other people saying, well, the TV networks are different. Nobody was including everybody together because the TV networks, the big brands who paid for the TV networks and the consumers who watched the TV networks were completely dependent on one another. 
And so as as consumers left, eyeballs left, brands left, you know, then we we see that the mass exodus. And so what we've discovered is that it's not about labels. It's not about calling something an ad or calling it content, but that we know that people used to vote with their wallets and now they vote with their time. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't matter if it's Microsoft. And it doesn't matter if it's NBC. Good stuff is good stuff. And people see through the fact that there is an ulterior motive. And so the piece of content they're looking at in that moment has to be good enough to be judged on its own in isolation. And if it's great, they don't care. They really don't care where it came from. But if it smells like a pitch slap, well, suddenly we start going, oh, NBC just wants you to go to their website because they're getting additional advertising revenue over there. Yeah, that was one of my favorite lines in the book. People used to vote with their wallet. Now they vote with their time. So let me talk just a little bit about the derivation of the book title. Sure. You say great organizations and great leaders get people to pay attention to them. They get people to trust them, and they align the actions of all those around them to generate momentum and growth. They don't do this based on some perfectly written mission statement or some hollow buzzwords or by chasing the latest tactic. They do it with these three pillars. One, what they think. Two, what they do. Three, what they say. So to the listener, do you, do you see what he did there? So <laughs> let's let's get into a little bit of the of the think though, and I, I'd like you to explain. You say that when when people and companies move from being product focused to being purpose focused, they then elevate the conversation to something people actually care about. So what what does that mean to become more purpose focused, and 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 why do people actually start caring about that? Well, there's three reasons that organizations need to do that. The first reason is that is now the moral imperative, I think. And this this happened before the book was – or after the book was written. But in August of last year, Business Roundtable gets together, chaired by the CEO of Walmart. Full disclosure, they're a client. And gets 181 CEOs together, representing 35% of the total market cap in the U.S. And these CEOs sit down and say, things have to change. The corporation – is no longer defined by the Milton Friedman Bible, you know, article from 1970, the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits. And this group said, we do not have one constituent, the shareholder, we have five. That the corporation is now defined with five constituents, the employees, the customers, the partners, the shareholders, and the community in which we operate. Mm. So first and foremost, you're morally obligated by your peers to stand for something more. So that's one. The second reason is that if you define your organization by the thing you sell, that's amazing when the things you sell are doing well. If you're General Motors and you say, we're going to make the best car available, and that's your purpose tied to the product you make, that's amazing when cars are doing really well. But then, boom. Next thing you know, autonomous vehicles come in, ride sharing comes in, and the sale of cars decrease. Is this now still your purpose? Oh, no. Now it's not your purpose anymore. Now you're going to try and nimble around your way, right? So, Or when the sale of a product goes out or you know, when you're looking at the oil sector, like what's happening there. So there are going to be economic and social forces 
that will have an effect on the products you sell. Is your portfolio diversified enough to withstand those wins? And so, you know, if you say, well, we're going to elevate our, our belief beyond the thing we sell to something we fundamentally believe in, then that just happens to be one of the products that fulfill that mandate. But there could be many others. And so it gives you a license to diversify your portfolio while still being grounded in the same beliefs. You know, a great example of this that you may remember from the book was that I went to stay at a hotel in Berlin called Casa Camper. And it is a hotel. There are two of them now. Barcelona, Which your wife so- found for you. Yes, she's... Let's go full credit here. Full credit. She is the researcher. Uh, yeah, you know, whereas I typically just land in the city and go, oh, this looks pretty good. Uh, let's just stay here. But the company, Camper, is a shoe company. They make shoes. They're great shoes. They're out of Spain. But they have this hotel in Barcelona and Berlin. So I met with the general manager and said, what the hell? Like, you're a, you're a shoe company. Why do you have a hotel? And they said, we're not a shoe company. And I was like, well, I got, like, I have them. I know you are. She's like, no. That's not how we define ourselves. We define ourselves by health, simplicity, and design. We apply that to shoes. So we're a company that happens to make shoes. But we want to see where else could we apply those values and that purpose to grow our business. And so they went to hospitality. So it is completely brand consistent. It is a brand extension that makes a lot of sense. And they've now weathered a storm. If let's say shoes, people stop wearing shoes, then they've they've got a, a diversified for, for portfolio. The third reason of the of that purpose is yeah that you're gonna you think you're gonna cut through talking about your products. You're gonna if you're a bank, you're gonna cut through the noise talking about your interest rate. If you're a car company, you're gonna cut through the noise with your lease payment. Well, they're right? gonna cut through the noise by talking about their event. I think. Yeah, that's right. Right. So. And, and so everyone is just – it's this nonstop noise. And when we lead with product, it's really confusing because most of the products, they're just not that unique or special enough to cut through. You're talking about the same crap that everybody else in your category is talking about. Yes. Like give your head a shake. And if you're a, com- a computer OEM, you're talking about speeds and feeds. If you're a telco uh, in the mobile space, you're talking about how strong your network is and, and what the cost per minute is. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about sheets, you're talking about thread count. It's like we've heard it all before. So when you elevate that conversation that actually is unique enough and that is tied to something that people aspire to, well, I think you just have a better chance of cutting through. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the things that companies can start to do to determine what their their purpose is? And I'm wondering if you could also include examples of what that isn't. In other words, the mistakes companies make thinking that they're uh, achieving their purpose. For instance... You talk in the book about how writing a check to a charity is one of the laziest and probably, you know, I mean, it's a good thing to do, but you don't check the box by doing that necessarily. Do I have that right? Yeah, it's not purpose. You know, we've, we've as in many organizations where, where philanthropy has moved its way into reporting, into marketing. And I don't, you know, I don't care about the hierarchy of the org structure in that way, but, but philanthropy is not marketing. I mean, it is in some ways, I guess. It gives you a halo effect on the brand. But you cannot state that because you believe in a not-for-profit organization or cause that that is your organizational purpose. You know, Audi has done a lot of work in gender equality in the workforce. Obviously, a very important issue that every organization should get behind. But that's not why they make cars. That's not corporate purpose. That's philanthropy. 
that's cause marketing. And it's something that maybe they, that they need to do and that they should certainly look inward on, but that's not corporate purpose. So certainly philanthropy is not corporate purpose. It's philanthropy. The second one is like, you know, a lot of, I find this more in the C-suite where people go, they just go back 20 years and they're like, oh yeah, we got it. We have values. We've articulated those values. <laughs> we got him on the, in that binder up on that shelf there. Yeah. <laughs> From that retreat we had, remember? Exactly, right? They go to the the lakefront resort north of whatever city they live in. Mm -hmm. They gather around a flip chart, and somebody goes, all right, people, we need values. And someone's like, I I hear accountability is good. And you're like, right on, Mary. We're writing that one down. And then you end up with, you go like, okay, we got performance, accountability, creativity. Shit, if only we had an E, we could spell pace. We could, you know, (laughs) kick this out and... And then you, someone's like, for everybody. You're like, yeah, for everybody. And then you make posters that say setting the pace. And then you bring in a marathoner who set the pace. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I see what you're doing there. And then maybe you have, have a pace car. You have a pace car. You celebrate Tom's pacemaker that, he, you know, like. <laughs> right. And I'm not, again, don't, I'm not ridiculing the exercise. We do need to articulate what we stand for. We do need to make it memorable enough, but I shouldn't read your values. I should experience your values. And experiencing your values is only done through the actions of your people. It is only done through that. And so far too many people in the C-suite articulate the values and check the box and they go, okay, we have values. What? No, you've written them. That's the easy part. Come on. And you just think that you read in a, in a textbook somewhere that you need to have aligned your values. And so you've articulated them, you put them on the website, and nothing has ever happened again. Or worse, you make decisions that contradict your values because there's a lot of money attached to them. Mm-hmm. You know, earlier this year, we fired a client and we gave money back. And Doug, I don't need to tell you that if you do a Google search on ad agencies, firing clients and giving money back is not something a lot of ad agencies are in a position to do. Mm-hmm. Arsons are getting cut. You're constantly pitching. But we looked at this client and said, these people who are lovely people, they're nice people, but we are contradict. We our values are in complete contradiction. And we can say we stand up for these things, but it requires, you know, as Nike told us, if you believe in something, believe in it, even if it means sacrificing everything. So we fired the client. We gave the money back came back and told our people, look, there might be staffing ramifications to this, but we can't, we can't very well say we believe in certain things. And then just let clients treat you that way when it contradicts those values just because there's money attached to it. And so and I think it's bold decisions. And, and you know what, by the way, that's an easy decision for me to make. Because by the time that money hits my pocket, you know, we're talking ten, twenty dollars. Like, you know, this is, you know, it. But it for when we came back after doing that, and we got a standing ovation from our team. That to me says a team that is bought into the values of the organization. Because there is greater risk for them than there is for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me ask you this then, Ron Tite. Explain <laughs> the concept of the integrity gap. The integrity gap is when. The actions of one or two or a few people contradict what the organization supposedly stands for. Okay. So an example would be? An example uh, would be you are promised a certain meal within three minutes and you go to the restaurant and you get it in six. You're like, hey, I thought this was supposed to be the quick place. And and this is, why did this happen? Now, 
those micro integrity gaps, those are like paper cuts. Right. We're all, we're all adults. We know that everybody can't, you know, be 100% perfect every single time. Paper cut, paper cut, paper cut, paper cut, paper cut, paper cut, paper cut. Integrity gap, integrity gap, integrity gap. Frontline employee does something that contradicts. Frontline employee contradicts. Integrity gap. And the next thing you know, your bank has opened 1 million fake accounts, or not fake accounts, but unauthorized accounts with customer information. Yeah. You know, I mean, Wells Fargo, that I think to me, so that the frontline employee, you know, not living up to the service standard of what the organization supports or stands for, that is is a minor integrity gap that over time, when consumers, enough consumers see enough of them, you can bleed to death from paper cuts. You just need a lot of them, right? And the other side is massive integrity gaps where 60 minutes is on the phone. Now, that can either be, oh, no, this CEO has done something. They have had an uh, an inappropriate relationship with somebody and they get fired. And that's 60 minutes on the phone. Or it is a cultural integrity gap where 5,000 people in Wells Fargo are told by their senior officers, look, whatever you do, make your numbers. Now, look, when you tell people that what you do whatever you need to do to make your numbers, don't be surprised when they abandon your values. And so in that case, whose fault is that? Is that the 5,000 people who cheated the system to create fake accounts so they can make their numbers? Yeah, it is. Is it their bosses? Yeah, it is. Is it the culture that tells somebody that that is okay? Yeah, because it wasn't one person. It was 5,000 of them. That doesn't happen by coincidence. (laughs) That is a culture that allows integrity gaps to occur at the expense of long-term growth for short-term growth. And that stuff catches up with you. And we are, as marketers, we're so focused on the short-term growth. Mm -hmm. We're so focused on short-term tactics and metrics that we don't pay attention to the long-term, the growth of the brand. And uh, you know what? And that's, we can point the finger in a million different places, Where does it start? It starts with we the people. We the people who own shares in publicly traded companies who say, I don't care. What's my return for the quarter? And we don't, you know, the the markets aren't kind to organizations who say we're going to take one step back to ensure long-term growth. Screw that. We want quarterly dividends. So it starts there and that pressure gets all the way down the table. So, you know, I think it uh, it is not the marketer's sole fault. But we are certainly playing the game. Mm. Why are you not a fan of the term customer experience? I think the the notion of delivering amazing experiences for our customers is fantastic. I think that should be a strategic priority. I don't like referring to it as customer experience because I find that when I go and talk to people who don't have customer-facing roles, they tune out. Because that it's the language of that, and it might be splitting hairs here, but the language of it, it sees that that you should provide a customer experience. You know, half the three quarters of the organization, they don't touch the customer. I work in payroll. What the hell does that mean to me? I'm Frank. I work in payroll. So what Frank needs to know is that if Frank serves, and whether you want to call it his internal customer, which I don't like either, but whatever, that Frank serves somebody. Frank has uh, somebody that he does it for. And so we have to ask ourselves, who do I do it for? 
Now, for some people, yep, 100%. If you're a grocery store cashier, you do it for the customer who is standing before you in that moment, and you should deliver the best experience, get them out as quick as possible in the most friendly way. Got it. But if you're in payroll, if if the person you do it for is the director of payroll, the director of finance, that person needs something from you. They need you, they need timely reports. They need timely data. They need you to fill out your paperwork on time. They need you to to innovate the system, to do it in a more efficient way. They need you to explore new tools, all those sorts of things. If you don't deliver payroll to the person you deliver payroll to, that is going to result in a horrible customer experience because your frontline people aren't going to get paid. But telling Frank and payroll that he should be about customer experience, I think is wrong. I think Frank needs to, be the best for the person that he serves. And when everybody is best to the person that they serve, ah, now we've got complete alignment within the organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, there was another part in the book that really resonated with me. I see it all the time. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about it. You say if you benchmark your own industry, you'll just copy your competition. Yeah. If you look elsewhere, you'll be inspired to do something that your competition hasn't thought of. There's this sea of sameness out there. What would be an example of, I mean, I, I in fact, I saw this in another book that was on the show called Nincompoopery, Why Your Customers Hate You and What to Do About It. And they, he talked about how a lot of them, you might have lousy competitors. Your industry yeah, might right. really suck. <laughs> That's right. So what would be an example of a, a company that is sort of... Um, I guess they're they're focusing more on their customers than their competition. But is this something you see uh, more than you like? Yeah, I think, you know, more because we do those. We do competitive reviews for our clients, right? Here's what everybody else is doing. The natural inclination is to say, well, let's just do that and better or faster or cheaper. Mm-hmm. And of course... Uh, sure, you're gonna. What are you gonna grow? Two percent of that? Great, good <laughs> right. job. And then you know, my friend Ken Wong is a is a professor at Queen's University Smith School of Business, and Ken has this great exercise where he says, "Okay, you're gonna time me, and you're gonna take a two dollar price, and you're gonna time me for me to apply my competitive review to this two dollar price. Ready? Go!" And then he r- scratches it out and writes a buck ninety nine. That's how fast it takes your competitors to respond to most of the things you do. Mm-hmm. And that what you should be doing is coming up with things that they cannot respond to, such original thinking that they would never get there. And so the the, the notion of, you know, Blue Ocean is that, you know, creating products that, that aren't compared to, to, their, uh, to the category, but they are in a category of one. And you can do that when you start to bring the influences of different, you know, um, different categories into an existing service. So, you know, pick the, the any of the real disruptors. Yeah, you uh, know, I was going to mention years ago when I worked at J. Walter in New York, I worked on the Schick account. <laughs> and, yeah. and of course, they would want to add a, an additional blade, you know, when they were completing, competing with Gillette. And, and in your book, great example, you say Gillette and Schick were not ready for Dollar Shave Club. No, they weren't. And I, there's two sides to this. They thought they were competing with each other. Yeah, and there's two sides to this that I think are really important. One, 100%. Didn't see them coming. They, you know, the in looking at the category, it was like, maybe we can put a gel that comes out of the thing. Maybe we can <laughs> the add, The moisturizing you know, strip. Yeah, the moisturizing strip, you know, and, and that does not solve anybody's big problems. There may have been minor problems, 
But the real problem was that they were so expensive through all these innovations that blades were behind lock and key. Right. And you hated having to run out of them and, you know. Yes, 40 bucks. And in Dollar Shave Clubs come in and says, what if we apply this direct-to-consumer model, which doesn't exist in shaving, to shaving? Mm -hmm. What if we don't go into retail at all? What if we apply Columbia House CD thinking to a subscription model to Blades? And they come up and then now that is a significant problem. That allows for huge growth. Now, the other side of this that I should say, and full disclosure, I have spoken to P&G on a couple of occasions and I think will be in the summertime in Switzerland or something. And did they but, buy Dollar Shave Club? Uh, Unilever bought Dollar oh, Unilever, Shave. okay. Yeah. For one um, billion dollars. For a lot of money. For a lot of money. Now, I also think established organizations get a bad, bad rap because it's really easy for us to go to a Schick and Gillette and say, come on, why didn't you do that? Right. That's really difficult. You've got legacy process, legacy people. You've got a channel of distribution of retailers all over the world mm-hmm. who have been your partner through thick and thin, where your customers know to get them, who still is a very – still control the majority of the market. You can't just flip the switch. Yeah. You know, and another example that's like that is the, the demise of Kodak. Where they say, oh, they they were just, they thought they were in the film business, but it was much, much more complicated than that. And they were similarly hamstrung. Yeah. You know, I I think that all the the real disruptors or the real ones are solving the problems the establishment can't or won't. You know, the real problem wasn't the blade or the, what did you call it? The gel strip. The moisturizing strip. The moisturizing strip. Yeah. It was was very important that I, I knew that once in my career. Yeah. But that wasn't the real problem. The real problem was that they were ridiculously expensive and I had to trudge out to the store to get them. Mm-hmm. And I know I get them on a regular basis. There's nothing changes. If you shave, you need them every so often. That was the real problem. So if the disruptors are solving the problems the establishment can't or won't, let's not kid ourselves. We all know that disruptors are only trying to become the establishment. They're trying to take you out. They're trying to behead the king. But let's not kid ourselves. They want to sit on the throne. They want to get fat and lazy and complacent just like everybody else. And they want to – because that's – you know, there's a point where you make your money. You make – you don't make your money in startup zone. You make your money when, you know, when products become so mass distributed and mass consumed and you do – you deliver them in a really efficient way. Your price point is really low. Your margin's great. That's where you make your money. Mm-hmm. And milk so it. it is – yeah, you exactly. You milk it and that's when you become the complacent establishment and there's nothing wrong with that. I just think that it is the balance of how do we milk it and how do we stay nimble to keep reinventing ourselves and so that we never quite get to the point where we're out of touch. But you know, Ron Tite, you actually answered that in your book. And it's one of the last couple things I wanted to ask you about, because this is sure. so helpful for businesses as it relates to innovation. But I want to quote from page 209. Not that people are playing the home game. We have an epidemic, the celebration of the startup as the only viable path to wealth for young people. They're bowing down in front of the Zuckerberg altar. They're misquoting scripture from Gary Vaynerchuk about the hustle and the grind, and they have a greater appreciation for Jack Dorsey than Jack Welch. My LinkedIn feed is filled with young business VJs sharing daily videos that dole out advice on making it in the business world even though they don't appear to have a business that makes anything but the video itself. 
You talk about how companies not act like a startup, but more about storming the castle from within. Could, could you compare and contrast this concept car versus assembly line thing? Because I think that would be really helpful for established businesses as it relates to innovation. Yeah, I grew up in Oshawa, Ontario, which is Canada's Flint, Michigan. It was the largest General Motors plant in the country. And I'd lived like a mile from the plant. I know that world. I was a creative director on Volvo. I know the car world. And in cars, you know, the, the legacy model there, of course, is where you make your money. And still today, where you make your money is on the assembly line. You make it there because you can scale that business really quickly. And the reason you can do that is because everybody knows exactly what role they play. They know exactly who they hand it off to. It is repeatable behavior over and over and over and over and over again. And if everybody in the line does their repeatable behavior the exact same way every single time, you actually guarantee quality. You actually guarantee cost and margin. You spit out the same product every single time with the same margin. That's where you make a lot of your money. There's no like you don't, you know, there's no collaboration on the assembly line. You don't press a red button and go like, I don't know, Jimmy, let's blue sky this a bit. <laughs> like, no. In agency business, we say, you kill it and bill it. Put your head down and kill it and bill it. Now, <clears throat> so that's the efficient method of delivery. That when, when cars want to innovate and want to try something new, they develop a concept car, which is off the assembly line. You don't, you don't build a concept car on the assembly line. You go to a small room, a small group of people, and when people look at concept cars, they go, who the hell is ever going to buy that? Well, nobody. Because the goal of a concept car is not for it to go into production, ever. It is to test the limits of their thinking. And what they do is they build it and then through that journey go like, oh, this can't, this gas cap, you know, this we could actually plug this in to the assembly line. And they plug it in. And so over time, the innovation occurs in a really responsible way. The problem with most organizations and certainly marketing organizations is that we're trying to apply this concept car thinking to an assembly line. We're coming back from a conference. We're going to say, now we're on TikTok. Now, you know, we're doing all these things. Uh-huh. And, we're, and we got the t-shirts that say pace on them. Yeah, 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 exactly. I saw a marathoner. I now know the pace I want to run at. Right. I think uh, this is also called management by in-flight magazine. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. I was on a flight. I read this thing. And your people are rolling their eyes going, oh, no, this is, right? Yeah. And you go implement this. And the result is chaos. It is absolute chaos. Nobody knows exactly what they're supposed to do. Nobody knows precisely what their metrics for success are. It's never been done before. How the hell am I supposed to know? And then at the end of it, you go, morale is horrible. Results are crap. Our costs are through the roof. Why didn't we just do what we did last year? And so the first part of innovation, of storming the castle from within, is that you need to look at what you're currently doing, and you need to make that as efficient as possible. If you are, for example, I was the creative director on Dell. We knew that there were certain vehicles that delivered at $15 cost per call or click. Every day, every single day, we knew it. And so if we knew, we knew what the call volume was going to be, because we knew what was running. Now, we just keep going that, and we looked at maybe we try and make the assembly line a little more efficient. Can we go from $15 CPA to uh, cost per call to $14? What if we add in color? What does that do? What if we shrink the headline? What does that do? So you get that vehicle to as efficient a place as possible, 
then walk away. We're having these conversations and debates with, and and I, you know, and I, we're just as much as fault as an agency. We're having these these crazy discussions about the color of a thing on a banner. Like what? This is not the. We're spending all this time on stuff that is not going to add value to this organization. Kill it and bill it. Get it out. We know what the response is going to be. And then let's spend some time on new and innovative thinking that will really drive the business if we get it right. But the caveat there is it is with the understanding that it is never going to go into production. We do it to do it and we see what we can learn. Mm-hmm. Now, I had a, a wonderful opportunity to do a gig after the book had been written. Oh, no, was it? No, no, it is in the book. It is in the book. But I, I got to meet a CEO. I can't, because of Chatham House Rules, I can't tell you who. Um, but I got to meet the CEO of a very, 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 very large e-commerce company that we've all shopped from. And somebody asked him about ex, uh, embracing failure. And he said, we don't embrace failure. We've built 85 warehouses. We should know how to do that by now. We do not embrace failure. I'll tell you what we do, though, is that we experiment. And the whole idea behind an experiment is that it cannot fail. You can't fail at an experiment. Mm-hmm. You only get learning from it, and then you move forward based on that learning. But that, I think, is at the heart of the, the problem with a, a lot of marketers now. Yeah, and you talk in the book about how you work with companies, or you'll, you'll be aware of them, and they claim that they uh, embrace failure. And, and that's not really true. What they're doing is they're punishing failure. But they're yeah. they're trying to say, oh, go ahead and fail. But it's really sort of in the in a different context. But let me ask you just uh, two other things from the book. I think the listeners would really find helpful. And one is you talk about how informal language is building trust, not destroying it. How so? And how can people spread that message uh, up the line? Well, informal language. You know, we used to in this business. We used to fire you know, DPs and directors who had lens flares and now we consciously put them in. Right. You know, we consciously put them in because it's more authentic, right? It, well, it just leads to the trust. If you're too perfect, you're too yeah. scripted. I don't buy that. Yeah. Too, you're too good. And so informal language is now is like, oh, this is, you know, it's the old, like, I want to have a beer with that guy, you know? Yes. And so it leads, yeah, informal language is leading to uh, significantly better trust. Yeah. And it's, I could just quote one other thing. When you try and look and act and sound like the stock photo version of what you think a professional in your field is supposed to look and act and sound like, there's no hope. You get lost in the crowd of sameness and people don't look up. You just end up sounding like everybody else. And guess what? No one buys it. They can smell that script miles away. Who's going to trust someone who isn't honest enough to be themselves? If you're hiding that, what else are you hiding? If you're willing to sell your soul for the sale, what else are you willing to sell your soul for? So people just aren't fooled by that. And I think they, get, they understand that much more quickly than a lot of uh, marketers think they do. Yeah. If readers took only one thing away from the book, Ron, what would you hope it would be? I hope they take away one simple thing. It's on me. You know, like the, there's so many of us who don't like the th- who don't like the environment we're in. When before I started my agency, I went out and I, I interviewed people from all parts of the ecosystem, and consistently, this is what people said: "Oh, this place is screwed up," <laughs> but not me, not my job. I mean, everybody else has to change, but not me. And so I think we need to get to a, pl- a point where we all are personally accountable for for uh, pushing and developing this ecosystem forward by making business a place that people want to have 
fun at, that people are fulfilled at, that people are enthused by. And that is, that's on us. And if we take the high road and, you know, just take care of our own little universe of the things that we do, then I think we'll, we'll be better off. So just for fun, what is one thing a listener can do to put in action one of the many ideas from your book? I highly recommend people go through the think, do, say, like, what do I think about over the next six months? What am I going to do? What three things am I going to do to reinforce that belief? And how am I going to talk about it? And the best way to do that is like what story best illustrates somebody delivering against that belief. Mm. And, you know, the stories that, that we tell one another, I think, are the things that generate repeatable behavior. Yeah. So, but I, I really do. I, I mean, I'm not to, to try and over and pitch slap people on the book. You don't need the you don't need to read the book to go like okay like what do I fundamentally believe in, what am I going to do to reinforce that belief and then, you know how how should I talk about it because if you the, the talking about thing is really difficult for people for some people, and they're like oh but isn't that being too promotional like no because what you're trying to do is you're talking about your values you're trying to get people on your side, on your purpose not to buy your product enough of those people are going to convert and buy your product anyhow. Mm-hmm. But that's not what the say is about. The say is about spreading your purpose and getting as many people on side as possible. So I think it's just like, do that. I just had lunch with an old friend and colleague who was like at a crossroads in his career. And he said the same thing. He's like, I th- he's like I've read the book and now I'm sitting down and I'm doing it. I'm, I'm articulating it. Mm, terrific. Ron, what books have inspired your work and career? Oh, The Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss. Excellent. I say that seriously. I think I go back now that I have a two-year-old and one on the way. I read it time and time again. But in the more business-focused area, you know, when I was a creative director, I read Daniel Pink's A Whole New Mind, and that that created a whole new mind for me. Mm. Doesn't get any better than that. Oh, terrific. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or have heard about that you're looking forward to seeing? You know, Scott Stratton and Allison Stratton wrote The Jackass Whisperer. Oh, yes. Um and I think that is a glorious, glorious book that uh, – and uh, full disclosure, they're good friends. But I think that it's that type of uh, – I touched on parts of that a little bit in the pitch slapping, but they, they did it in a way that is, uh, is a whole other art form. So I recommend that. Yes. I need to circle back with him and uh, try and get him or, or Allison on the show. I've interviewed him twice and Allison once, and it's – the listeners just love it. I, I uh, would love hey, – maybe you could put in a good word for me there, Mr. Tyler. 100%. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Happy to. You want yeah. to text him right now? Text him. Yeah, and uh, text um, Phil M. Jones too because there's a – I need to make him a member of the Marketing Book Podcast Three Timers Club with his latest book on um, how to start a business. Yeah, Phil's great. Phil's in Australia right now <clears throat> with Scott McCain and Jay Bear, two other wonderful speakers and yes. authors. Um, uh, but I think yeah, I think he'll be back this next week. I think. Yeah, great. Yeah. I love his books. I, all these guys you've mentioned here, and also in the book, it's so exciting for me to be able to, you know, to, to know that I've actually been able to um, to interview them. And so, for anyone that wants to win an autographed copy of Think Do Say, and it's autographed by Ron Tite, not me. Okay, just in case somebody's wondering, all you need to do is share this interview on. LinkedIn, make sure to tag me or let me know that you've done it and anywhere in the world where you happen to be, and I will send a copy of it uh, to one lucky winner. And anyone else, you're still not going to go home empty-handed. I will send you, if you've done this, to help share Ron's book. 
I will send you a marketing book podcast bookmark and laptop sticker, and I don't think it gets any any better than that. So, oh, does not. No. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to your sites and your your social media, including your LinkedIn profile, so listeners can connect with you and learn more about you, and hopefully they'll thank you for you being so generous with your time and joining us on the show. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Think, Do, Say, How to Seize Attention and Build Trust in a Busy, Busy World. The author is Ron Tite. Ron, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. And to everybody listening, thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate it. I know your time is valuable. And that closes the book on episode 272 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And if you'd like to record a question that could be answered on a future episode, please go to marketingbookpodcast.com and record it. And please join us next time as we welcome Matthew Sweezy to talk about his new book, The Context Marketing Revolution, How to Motivate Buyers in the Age of Infinite Media. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Jessica Ambrose. You live in Toronto. Do you know there's a buddy of mine from 30 years ago at Jay Walter who's the creative director at Edelman, Andrew Simon? Have you ever run into him? Oh, I know Andrew very well. Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. Yes. So I finally got to Toronto about two years ago uh, to do a talk and we got to reconnect. He was an assistant media planner when I was an assistant account executive oh, wow. at, at Jay Walter in 1988. Andrew's like the, the, the guy that everybody's like, Andrew Simon, he's got an MBA, right? Yeah. Yeah, from Northwestern. Yeah, he's the only he's the only creative director with an MBA. I love it. I absolutely love that about him. Um, but I also <laughs> love that he's gone on to Edelman. Edelman just got Judy John in. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.